Ethos. What do you do when your passion doesn't lead anywhere, or at least where you'd hope, maybe to a dream job or career? Well, my answer to that is you get curious. So maybe you grew up of dreaming of being an astronaut or engineer or if you're anything like me, uh, a career in radio, not as exciting as the other two, but the key is, you know, chances are it's going to change over the time of your lifespan. And then what do you do? Do you just give up and do whatever it takes to make money? Well, I hope not. And I want to learn from our guest today and introduce you to Tim Hendricks. He's a very curious person. And Tim grew up in Tennessee with a passion for music and acting, I understand, but ended up studying supply chain management and finance at Harvard, uh, working at uh, the Nissan Corporation and then Tesla. And now he's in venture capital, investing in early stage startups. Welcome to the Next Simple Step podcast, Tim. Fill in the gaps for us. How'd you end up uh, from the stage to Harvard, Tesla, and now venture capital? Thanks, Paul. Super excited to be here. Yeah, what a uh, what an awesome run it has been over the past past few years. Uh, but yeah, I grew up I grew up in Middle Tennessee, uh, born and raised here. I spent the majority of my time uh, doing what every every Tennessean does: uh, sports and uh, working through uh, a potential music career. Uh, so I uh, I spent a lot of time on stage. Uh, did a little bit of uh, stage acting here and there whenever you're in school. Uh, I've got a bubbly personality. I'm a pretty extroverted person. Uh, so naturally, I fit well in that in that scenario. But I, I grew up playing music. Uh, I grew up working uh, in our church playing music. And it was a very natural progression for me to try to take that on as a career. Now, I, I quickly learned at, at a younger age that maybe that's not going to be my claim to fame. Probably not going to be a rock star. Um, I'll try, but probably not going to make it. Uh, and I figured what can I do is go into doing what I know how to do outside of music, which was warehousing and supply chain. I spent a lot of time uh, learning that, trying to uh, become an expert in that field. Uh, since then, uh, supply chain has led to a love of accounting and finance. Uh, I went from uh, learning how to get trucks in and out of buildings on time to learning how to fund them. Uh, so I, I moved into Harvard to do a master's. Uh, after I completed that master's, uh, I was working with Tesla uh, and then uh, moving into moving into that even earlier venture space, working with early, early stage startups. Uh, it has been very exciting. Uh, I have opened many different doors along the past decade, two decades, but every door I've been very happy with. Uh, so it's been it's been an extraordinary, extraordinary time for me, an extraordinary story behind it all. Yeah, I love it, and I get the sense you're not done yet. So uh, I we have to back up a minute because you kind of covered a lot of ground there. Uh, oh, yeah. Now with the, with the interest in music and acting, do you still pursue music as a hobby or have you completely hung it up? I wish, I wish I still did it. Uh, I, I will play every now and then at home uh, usually when I get free time, but uh, the key word there is when I get free time and I'll be honest, man, there's not a lot of free time these days. Uh, I'm a, I'm a busy guy. There's a lot going on multiple roles that you serve in, uh, investing in uh, different companies, 
Um, but you kind of, you know, have several different hats you wear. So tell me about that. Why can't you just pick one? Why would you, right? Yeah. I mean, passion's passion. Uh, you you got to do what you love. I love a lot of different things. So I, I, I have a, a, a nine to five that I focus on where I, I, I love on my team. I help grow. I still solve problems. I get to put in every single day and, and work as hard as I can to move the needle there. I also work uh, in venture capital space where I'm able to work with even earlier startups. Uh, I get to work and do mentorship. I get to do speaking events like this. I get to do teaching events. Uh, In the next few weeks, I will be traveling overseas to do a seminar on venture capital, early stage investing, and ESG, which is something that's become very near and dear to me. That's uh, environmental, social, governance. Uh, it's, it's standards that we put on large corporations, uh, in, in hopes that we can get them to, uh, incentivize things that, that help our planet, help the employees, uh, help the, the vendors that are in the supply chain. So I, I have a lot of things that, uh, I've grown passionate about and it's hard to, it's hard to settle when there's that many passions. That is wonderful. And this podcast is all about taking the next simple step. So if somebody listening, you know, they have an idea, you invest in early stage startups. What advice do you have? Like, how do you get going and prove, prove a concept so that people like you want to invest in them? The one piece of advice that I always give, it's not the advice you would expect. Failure is okay. Yes. Uh, failure, failure is a-okay. Uh, it's almost expected. Thus, showing showing a venture capitalist, showing an investor that you have failed at something tells us a lot about you. And the first thing it says is, you actually made that leap. You actually jumped in and tried, which is powerful. You took, you took that first simple step, right? <laughs> so that's, that's the first thing I always share. Failure is okay. In venture capital, 99% fail at some stage. Yes. And that's all right. That's a big number, but that's okay. That's why I always say, let's normalize that. Uh, just show me that you have the ability to go out there. Show me the ability that you can put some value proposition together. You can tie a story. I, I don't necessarily invest in just fundamentals of a business. I'm also investing in a person, in a, in a co-founder or a founder. So I'm in, I'm investing in their passion. If they can talk to me show some some fundamental value but do it with great passion man that's powerful stuff i will almost always go with that person that's that's awesome i uh saw an interview with kevin o'leary uh you know from shark tank mr wonderful as they call him and they i'm going to ask you the same question the interview asked him they ask him you know his, his biggest failure his biggest miss in investing and his answer was pretty amazing it, it was the ring doorbell. He passed on uh, investing in that. And of course, you know, that kind of worked out for the founders of ring. Uh, it's everywhere now. So tell me about your uh, biggest kind of miss or failure, if you will. Sure. So I, I don't always follow up after a pass, but usually if I am passing, uh, the language I've always used is uh, as much as startups fail, I also fail. Uh, I probably am missing something here. I'm probably passing on the next unicorn to hit the valley. Uh, That's okay. But I I have to pass it this time. I know you're going to probably do great things. I hope I see it in the future. 
Um, I always try to leave that that open ended piece to it because it's it's true. Everyone's going to fail. Now, for myself, uh, the biggest failure that's tough. Um, and I'll actually say, outside of investing, I think the biggest failure that I had was going from high school into university. Um, I had told myself, okay, I, I'm getting into college one way and one way only. I'll probably be playing sports of some kind. And I, that's my focus. Uh, so I made that my focus uh, and it actually came true. I went to college in order to play sports. I spent the first month, month and a half doing summer conditioning. And I knew almost immediately, uh, yeah, this is not for me. This is not my gig. Tennessee's too hot. I'm not going to keep running like this. Uh, not my gig. And just like that, I said, okay, uh, times are tough. I don't want to do this. I backed out. And looking back on it today, there are a lot of times where I say, oh, what if I would have stuck with that? I wonder what that path would have looked like had I have just stuck around and done that a little bit longer. Uh, they actually ended up winning a championship. So the first answer is I would have had a really cool ring. But um, you know, deeper than that, uh, it, it showed me that quitting early, giving up, not trying, it, it put this seed inside of me of, of regret or even deeper doubt. I doubted that I could even stick with it or that I could get used to running sprints in 100 degree weather and 100% humidity. It put that seed of doubt. I grew very uncomfortable with that doubt. Thus, nowadays, if there's a passion, if there's something that I find inspiring, I'm more than likely going to chase that down. I would much rather look back and say, I took that first step. I tried. And that sits much better with my soul, knowing I tried. So my biggest failure was giving up early. Okay, that's a great question I'd like to follow up on because uh, some of us hang on too long. So when do you know what's the right moment there? Because if you're in your 40s and you're still trying to become you know, the Olympic athlete and it hasn't worked out for you professionally yet, you might want to change goals, right? So when is the right time? I, I get it. Like, be willing to fail, great. We can all experience that. But uh, when's it okay to move on? W w how do you decide that? That is a that is a, a quite literally a million dollar question. Uh, so in our personal lives, I have plenty of friends that are are still holding on to a dream of being a musician, still holding on to a dream of uh, being a professional athlete, being a movie star. When do you tell them to give up on that passion? Or when do you become comfortable giving up on that passion? That's that's hard to answer. In the professional world, it's much more clear. There are plenty of indicators that say, uh, A, I'm going to run out of money on this deal. I need to cut it loose. It cannot, it cannot financially continue. Or number two, I think we have met a limit on what this product is going to develop and present to the market. Now I would like to look at maybe having another company acquire it or maybe merging this technology with someone else's technology. One of the, one of the things I always like to talk about with venture capital is not everything goes public. Not everything does an IPO process. In fact, it's almost 50, 50, the company either does a merger and acquisition or it fails. 
So even when you have raised capital, even when you have a product, you have revenue, there's still about a 45% chance you're going to fail. You're not going to get that next fundraise. Something's going to happen with the market that changes uh, the dynamics. So I, I always like to mention that because it just goes to show that you always have to be figuring out how to pivot, knowing when to pivot. Uh, there's a phrase, ABR, always be raising, always be raising those funds. You can never hurt having cash. But um, yeah, when do, you, when do you say, okay, now's my time to cut clean and, and back away? Uh, it's a window of opportunity. That window of opportunity for an investor like myself is going to be how much return am I getting for my client? Am I, am I getting it in a timely manner? We would tell a client, hey, we want to get you 30% you know, IRR, internal rate of return. In order to do that, you need two components, the capital coming back, the return, and time. If you are getting returns, but it's taking longer and longer and longer to get them, your IRR goes down significantly. Now I don't look so great as an investor because now I'm just giving 10% back versus 30. I could have, I could have cut my ties much sooner. So there's there's financial, there's there's metrics that you have to weigh, but primarily in this landscape, man, there really is no right or wrong answer. You either hit or you miss. Well, and what are you willing to go for broke for, right? And I think about, I saw this poem the other day that uh, just stopped me in my tracks. It's, what's the saddest word in the English language? Almost. Why? I was almost good enough. He was almost in love with me. She almost survived. We almost made it. Yeah. Doesn't that just sting? It's like, and <laughs> I, so you work for, you know, Elon. Uh, and I, I remember seeing the documentary uh, about uh, building, you know, SpaceX and he came pretty close for broke. And, you know, now he's a genius because it all worked out, right? But, um, you know, it almost didn't, right? And so um, tell me about that, being up close to, you know, one of the greatest entrepreneurs and thinkers of our time. What did you learn from your, your time at Tesla? So my time at Tesla, moving, moving from a large, established, best-in-class corporation uh, like, like Nissan is, moving into what felt like still a startup, uh, the biggest changes I saw was uh, there's a lot of process and procedure we're still laying out. There's a lot of things that we would do, uh, we'll say at Nissan, that we would do very systemically, very, very calculated, very scheduled. Those things were happening in a similar way at Tesla, but maybe in a different order, maybe not quite as structured. So I had to get comfortable with a little bit of ambiguity, a little less structure. Uh, and I found that, man, I actually kind of thrive in these spaces. I thrive in an area where they're looking to me to lay out the best practice or to improve a practice someone else previously had created. So working with different analysts, different engineers, uh, different coordinators, directors, you find that it really is a place where it's okay to question. It's okay to try something different. It's okay to bring in a vendor that's never done automotive before and, and give them a shot. Um, they are the epitome of fail fast and fix it. So there were many instances where we had opportunities that we needed to improve something or something needed to change. Uh, 
there was not a long line of red tape that said, wait, go through these 15 channels, get these 19 sign-offs, make sure you have all of this presented in a nice presentation and we'll review it next year. That never happened. What we had was, what's wrong? This is wrong. How do we want to fix this? I think this is the best way. Okay, let's try it. Let me know if it doesn't work. We'll pivot. Very quick to fail. That's where I got this idea of failure is very normal and it's okay. Uh, being close, being close to the decision-making process, being close to seeing how those decisions were made, uh, every now and then it would put you in proximity of, of a guy like Elon, uh, being within proximity of a guy like Elon is powerful. Uh, literally you can physically feel a gravity whenever you are around someone like that. And it may be a starstruck thing. Or it may be this individual is, is operating on a level that I, I've never personally seen. Uh, one of the things that I have found very powerful about him, he is usually four, five questions away from being an expert in your field. Tremendous. So you would say, my name's Tim. I'm an expert in supply chain. And he will say, okay, what's supply chain? I'll answer. Okay, well, what does that mean? Okay, is that similar to this? Four or five questions, and literally the guy knows more than you do about what, what you are doing. Uh, I, I have seen him do it with engineers. I've seen him do it with uh, individuals that just work on the line. He can easily walk in, access what's happening, ask a few questions, and somehow knows more than you. Uh that always was a little bit scary. The amount of information he can process and how quickly he processes. Um, well, but- I love that he's not afraid to ask those questions. And I think that's a great lesson right there for all of us, because I sense my pride often where I'm afraid to ask the question and, and look stupid. Like, I don't already know that. Uh, like when you mentioned supply chain, I just kind of nod my head. Like, I know what that means. <laughs> right. I have no clue what that means. <laughs> I know that sometimes we run out of toilet paper during a pandemic and yeah. I, it doesn't quite make sense. Uh, but, um, you know, he's willing to, um, he's willing to fail and fail fast. And of course, you know, that has led to great success. Now, individual results may vary absolutely, uh, because you've <laughs> got to be able to make those connections and, um, you, you have to obviously uh, be willing to, uh, your level of appropriate risk. And, uh, and so tell me about, uh, your, uh, investing now, what are you most excited about? What, what are you most curious about right now? So I I always have a passion for uh, supply chain logistics because that to to me that's always been home. That's that's where my heart has always been. Uh, so anything I see in that space that is changing or becoming more innovative, solving big problems, that that for me is exciting. So whenever I look at supply chain, I see some issues that come about where maybe there's not enough transparency in the supply chain, or maybe uh, we just don't know where our raw materials that make up uh, the cool phone we use, where those came from, how were they put together, uh, what country was it, what, what were the labor practices like, uh, the team that was marketing it, was everyone paid fairly? There's a lot of ambiguity in supply chain, and there's a lot of blind spots. 
So that got me very interested in uh, some of the technology that has made up uh, your favorite crypto coins or, you know, um, different types of smart contracts. Uh, It's called blockchain and blockchain opens up a world of transparency. Uh, You can see many, many levels all the way through. Uh, It's very, very difficult to game or change a blockchain. And so I have been interested in seeing what companies are pairing blockchain and supply chain together to make ethical supply chains, uh, sustainable supply chains. Those are really important things these days. A recent example in the news a few months ago, there was uh, a run on baby formula. We ran out. Uh, Tell me about that. How does that happen? So you find instances where uh, you mentioned toilet paper earlier as well. You find instances where all of a sudden the shelf is empty and you cannot find any of it around. Where blockchain can help improve that, uh, you can see exactly what led to, uh, let's say, uh, a shortage for a supplier. Because you could actually track it back to what manufacturers were they using? What, what, What part of the world was it coming from? And what you end up finding is a lot of little crumbs that help you put together a story. Okay. This baby formula, this is totally hypothetical, by the way, I am not a baby formula expert. (laughs) This, uh, (laughs) not a user personally, but, uh, baby formula comes from this vendor that is in this region of Asia. That region of Asia just had a typhoon season. Uh, that plant ended up getting flooded. Therefore their business had 85% of their materials coming from there that's an immediate disruption to the supply chain. Just like that, you can find those details going through a blockchain to figure out where it came from, where it initiated. Now, when you look at toilet paper, uh, there are a couple of reasons why that situation happened. Um, a lot of fear around around having enough. And I'll be honest, I, for one, don't want to run out. I get it. Uh, but, you know, that <laughs> so one doesn't You had quite, a hoarding situation. We had a bit of a hoarding situation. And in that case, yeah. you start to figure out, okay, well, why could we not restock the shelves? Why could we not get it in fast enough? And what you'll see is uh, a vendor along the blockchain is uh, Tim's Trucking Service. Well, Tim's Trucking Service can only hire so many people. I got phased out very quickly. I ran into capacity issues. Or you can go one step further and say the the company that was producing the paper for the toilet paper, the, the actual pulp, that company ended up running into labor issues. Uh, maybe we found that they were mistreating and there was a strike. Maybe we found that uh, that company tried to unionize and they uh, stopped production for a period of time. Maybe there was a mass layoff somewhere in there. Uh, you can start following the breadcrumbs when blockchain is involved. It paints a much bigger, much more realistic image for us. I can tell this is an area of passion uh, for you. And I'm going to be honest, uh, I hear the word blockchain sure. and uh, explain it to me like I'm a third grader because that's about the level at which I understand this. I know enough about crypto that it's dangerous because a whole lot of people <laughs> lost a whole lot of money yes, they did. Uh, with the crypto crash. So that doesn't seem like a safe investment vehicle, or at least in recent history. So tell, explain to me blockchain and how crypto fits into the blockchain. So blockchains are, they're also known as a distributed ledger technology, a DLT. These are created in order to store data 
via cryptography, which is a fun word to say because I butcher that word almost every time. Cryptography. That cryptography goes to a block. Now, because everyone at home cannot see the hand gestures I'm using to explain this, I'm going to try really hard to use my words. Um, That's what my mom would say. I have to use my words. (laughs) Uh, The block that is created with these bits of data is added to a ledger. Now, a ledger is a lot like that checkbook where you go to the back and you put Walmart, negative $200. It's a busy uh-huh. shopping week. Uh, bank, deduct $10. That ledger is owned by many, 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 many people. So every little piece of data that is added to a blockchain is updated in all of these ledgers. What that does is it makes a nice transactional database that we can follow that is very, very, if not impossible to manipulate. In order to manipulate it, someone would have to convince the hundreds of thousands of ledger holders to make an adjustment to that one ledger. A good example would be um, phone manufacturer number one has done some really shady work with supplier A. They want to get rid of that existence altogether. They want to clear those contracts, erase all the records. Today, very easy. In a blockchain-driven supply chain, nearly impossible. So it's a way that we can go back, look at a few of the data snippets and say, wow, that's unethical. That They should have never been working there. Now me as an investor, I can start asking questions like, hey, uh, phone manufacturer, exactly why were you working with supplier A in 2017? What was that relationship like? How? What due diligence did you do? I can become a much more responsible investor in that sense. This technology is everywhere. Uh, it's mostly in the new age stuff that you're starting to see become popular. It's in cryptocurrencies. Uh, we talk about decentralized finance a lot uh, in my investment thesis. Uh, we call that DeFi. It's it's a lot of the new um, vendors that you see allowing you to just use your phone or uh, just uh, send it via an airwave, you know, or uh, over the internet. DeFi is very popular because it goes outside of normal banking structure. Non fungible tokens. There's a hot one for you. NFTs. Yeah. Uh, how many how many board apes do you have, man? I got zero. But. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not doing that because I know uh, I don't know anything about it, and it, and I know that uh, it's very interesting when you talk about NFTs and cryptocurrencies. We saw this huge spike, and then a whole lot of people lose money. So tell me about that. As far as where do you see this whole thing going? So I get the blockchain is about transparency, and not one person keeping a ledger, but it copied a uh, hundred thousand times over. So. Um, that's that sounds amazing. That's great that there's accountability and transparency. But uh, where's this NFT crypto thing uh, going? Is that going to um, continue, uh, you know, to grow, or have we kind of hit the peak and and uh, and it be kind of on the the uh, on the fringes like it is now? So I, I believe all of the excitement that was surrounding. Uh, these massive hikes on the secondary market. I think that excitement has cooled down quite a bit. The chart shows that, right? Uh, That excitement is chilled out, which means now what is left is fundamentals, what fundamentally works. Mm. 
So what you'll see is a lot of these coins that people were using and creating, likely most of those will die off. And we'll be left with a lot of the core uh, infrastructure and core technology. So you'll see Bitcoin hang around. There's a coin Ethereum. It'll hang around. You'll mm-hmm. see these still stay in existence. But NFTs, I, I do like the idea behind an NFT because much like a crypto coin, only X number are created. That's how you get value because it is limited to a certain extent, much like a US dollar is. Uh, so NFTs do fundamentally hold a purpose. Now, is it artwork? Is it music? Is it uh, that is still to be determined? The quickest hmm. and easiest thing to get NFTs working likely was artwork, digital art. Now, is that going to be the the future of it? Likely not. Uh, it likely will change into something more practical, something more enterprising than art is. Uh, whenever we look at the building blocks, sorry for the pun, the building blocks of blockchain, you will see that there is fundamental use that can be moved into many different enterprises. I talk about supply chain because I know a lot about it, but finance has uh, infinite uses for something like this. Uh, You could probably say that our, you know, whenever I go to a clinic, Keeping that information stored in a chain is likely very important or a very good use case. Education uh, likely has uh, the ability to utilize a blockchain, uh, even if it's just teaching about it or sharing transparency around it. Uh, But I I do see some growth there. Thank you for sharing. I I feel like I'm beginning to get curious, a a little more of an understanding, but you've mentioned a couple of times your interest and passion uh, for our environment. Uh, You mentioned the ESG, environmental, social, and governance. And I've heard that to create cryptocurrency takes a ton of energy. So reconcile that for me or bust that myth. Man, that's a, that's a, that is solid. So that's, whenever I usually hear individuals that say, ah, I'm not sure if ESG really plays a role or probably more common, are electric vehicles really worth it? I mean, doesn't it take some type of energy? Where does that energy come from? How does that work? Uh, Man, those are great questions. And the way I usually point to it is anytime we have innovation, at no point is that innovation going to be ready to go day one. It's solved. Electric vehicles are still fairly new, if you will. Uh, think of you know the Prius. What year did the Prius come out? It, it was in this millennia, right? So 2000, some point. Uh, when did the Nissan Leaf launch? When did Tesla launch? Because they, they only became popular uh, in the 2010s. So 2010, 2012, 2013 is when their actual shipments started to go up. There is a lot of change to infrastructure that has to happen. I don't think we ever get to a world where we're not, you know, where we've gotten rid of fossil fuels. I don't think that exists. I would I would argue I don't think Elon even thinks that world exists. There are plenty of things that electric's not going to solve for us. But there are plenty of things that electric will solve for us. Um, whenever you look at utilization of solar panels on your home. That covers quite a bit of your energy use. Whenever you look at, uh, let's say, um, ancillary equipment that you can put in your home that will store 
the electric that you produce via solar, wind, water. Uh, that that alone could store, hold. If you happen to run into a blackout for a few days, you're likely covered, which is great for anyone who lives in a home that has to have electricity. You know, imagine if you had some type of health condition that required you to have uh, some monitor on all the time. How long does that battery last before you really need more? Uh, so I, I do think that our infrastructure has a long way to go still. A lot of our, our governing policies have a long way to go. And it's going to be a while before people get comfortable with the idea of thinking of our planet first. It's not uncommon. Uh, it might be a more popular on the West Coast thing, maybe. But uh, I will say anything that's been new, inventive, distru- uh, will disturb an industry, disrupt an industry. It takes us a little while to get comfortable. I mean, how comfortable are you with blockchain right now? Maybe not the most comfortable, but I mean, in two years, you likely will notice, wow, this is everywhere. Okay, I get this. Um, how comfortable with you were you whenever you moved from, I'm going to make an assumption, when you moved from a BlackBerry to an iPhone or, or, or a uh, Samsung? Um, I used BlackBerry almost all the way up to the end. I didn't want to make that transition. That was my comfort level. It's what I knew. I like the keyboard. I didn't the think we'd ever see a phone without the, phone. the keyboard. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. It was right there. And so it, it took me a while to get comfortable with it. Uh-huh. It took me a while to get comfortable driving a car and not an SUV or a truck. That was weird. So like there, there are there are transitions that need to happen with us as consumers as well to get comfortable around the idea of is what I'm buying helpful to the planet? Uh, is what I'm buying, does this company pay their employees the right the right wages? Uh, did this company uh, try to overturn some legislation that's only in their favor to make them a monopoly in the market? Uh, there will be a time where that transparency is is just right in front of us. And it's easy for us to go to the store and do something cool like, scan the barcode and receive a rating and explanations, pros and cons of buying that product. Tim, if you buy this product, all of these water bottles are single use and do not decay within 50 years. Something like that. Uh, that's my, that's an example I could probably give. Uh, that's probably s- sooner than later. That's probably the next step. Man. Okay. You just blew my mind because I didn't think about that use case, but that really relies upon us trusting the information because you have a lot of misinformation online. And so it's key that like these facts are agreed upon that it's not, you know, one political uh, action committee or, or one company uh, sponsoring those facts, right? It's not, you know, just what Amazon wants you to know about what you're buying, but, but the actual facts of where things are sourced and in how people are treated Man, I love Paul. Imagine, imagine a news outlet that utilized blockchain to distribute their sources mm. of where information came from to create an article. Holy cow! That would be uh, knowing upfront. Here's what news source one's telling me, and here's where they got that conclusion from. Yeah. Ooh. Well, tell us your assumptions. At the end of the day, we're going to disagree on some things for sure. We're all different, oh, different yeah. experiences and worldviews, and I get that. But can I just? Long for a world where we can at least agree on the basic 
premise that we're uh, arguing from and if there's a vested interest behind that source. And man, that's wonderful. I, I'm excited. Bring on the blockchain. That's <laughs> that's awesome. Okay. Well, you've been very generous with your time. I want to wrap it up. It is the next simple step. If somebody's interested in being more like you and getting more curious, where can we go to, to start learning more about um, blockchain and kind of, you know, how to be uh, more environmentally conscious uh, in our purchasing decisions? Um, where do you even start? Oh, man, it's as easy as a Google search. And even easier than a Google search, find me on LinkedIn. I love these conversations. I'm happy to have them. Um, but it, when, when you're searching, search for environmental social governance, ESG. Search for corporate social responsibility, CSR. Search for how is venture capital changing this? Search for how can I make a change with this? My only thing I always ask is, don't just trust me. Uh, I, 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 of course, have my own agenda, I'm sure. Uh, don't just trust me. Do your own research. Wait, what, is, what does your coffee cup say? I, I was holding up my mug. It's a quote from Ronald Reagan. Trust but verify. Trust It's but my verify. favorite quote. There you go. <laughs> That's it. So, yes. Perfect. Uh, don't just trust me. Verify for yourself. Jump in. See what you think about it. Uh, don't let anyone else tell you what to believe in this big, crazy world. Uh, make your own mind up for you and do what's right with your soul. Okay. Well, there's your invitation uh, to get more curious. Find Tim on LinkedIn. You're Tim Hendricks, H-E-N-D-R-I-X. Uh, and this has been amazing. Thank you so much for teaching us a little bit. You threw out so many initials there. I'm going to have to go back and listen to this episode a couple of times yeah, yeah. Um, to, to just learn more about uh, these the exciting future of where we're headed and uh, where the investment opportunities. You know, there are some jobs, uh, many of our kids are going to work in jobs and industries that don't exist yet. And that can be scary or it can be exciting as we kind of learn about these together. And uh, as you said, you know, be okay with failure. It's all about uh, the lesson learned and using that on the next lesson. And uh, just, just keep learning. Um, Tim, thank you so much for being here today. This has been the next Simple Step Podcast. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks, Paul. 